On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchando. Welcome into Second Shot, everybody. I'm Jenny Anchando, and today's will be a Second Shot Sit-Down. Gosh, it's been on my mind for months now, and we wanted to find the right time, the right positioning to get this person on. Her name is Alicia, and she is the CEO and founder of the Treasured Vessels Foundation. So this is a residential community in North Texas. It really operates daily as a therapeutic aftercare program for survivors of domestic sex trafficking. So just a heads up and a warning that, that some of what we're gonna talk about in this full episode is going to be more of the adult nature. I also want to always, when we're talking about something serious like this, um, put out there that this is, this is a potential trigger for somebody who has experienced trauma or abuse. So this may not be content that everybody wants to, um, to delve into, or you might wanna make sure that you're in the right headspace to delve into this. So for now, we will welcome in Alicia Bush. Alicia, good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, I've heard so much about your foundation. And like I said uh, off the top here, I just, I wanted to find the right space to delve deep into it, to give a, a full and deep discussion because you just, you can't get into this. You can't get in and out of this discussion in a couple minutes. Um, it, it, it really is, is one that requires some deep thinking. But I want to rewind first to what made you start this organization to begin with, because it's not what people might think. Um, I, I was quite surprised to hear the backstory on that. Yeah, so I have a background in healthcare. I was in medical device sales for about 14 years and a wife and a mother of three and just really felt something. I was called to something else and I really didn't know what that was but I have this all in kind of mentality. And so I knew that in order to find out whatever that was, I needed to resign from my career in medicine and really begin to go on this faith journey uh, of understanding what I was created to do. And along this 11 month journey, I had not heard of human trafficking. Um, actually, my, I take that back. My husband went to a men's breakfast years prior and heard about human trafficking mm -hmm. as we are international missionaries. but. But really, when you when you go to a talk and you hear about it uh, and you're busy and life happens, you just kind of go like, what am I going to do? How could I help in this particular area? So I think that seed was planted. However, I wasn't sexually abused. I didn't know anyone that was trafficked. I didn't really understand that trafficking was even a, a thing here in in our area. So 11 months later in this journey, I went to my husband and I said, oh, I, honey, I could do this with my life and I could do this with my life. And he said, Alicia, I have no doubt in my mind that you can do all of those things. He said, however, I don't think that's it. He goes, what are you going to do with your hands? And he held up his hands like this. And I said, I don't know, Lord, what am I going to do with my hands? 
And I woke up the next day, sat straight up out of bed, and the Lord spoke to me and said, you will build an aftercare facility for girls rescued from sex trafficking. And I know for so many of us in our faith journey, we're like, uh, is that possible? Was that bad pizza? You know, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, and then I turned to my husband and I said, we will build an aftercare facility for girls rescued from sex trafficking. And it was so clear to him. He's a builder. I have a background in healthcare. I love connecting with the people and said, okay, that's, that's what we're going to do. However, before you make a decision, you got to really find out, is there really a need and what does that need look like? And so, so then that's you when we kind started of went, this journey. Yeah, so then you kind of went down the, because it's, it's sort of the same thing as when somebody thinks about a business, right? You, you think about, okay, so I want to do this business, but is there a need for it? Is there a market for it? And, and given the fact that you didn't have superior knowledge about sex trafficking, you had to figure out, okay, do we need this? I, I think it's, it's clear that for, for anybody that has any knowledge of this, this is a huge need, but what did you find as you started to investigate? Well, the level of knowledge I had based on that understanding that, okay, there is, when someone is recovered from a trafficking situation, when we read about them on the news, where do they go? And so I started asking law enforcement, other nonprofits in this space as I Googled them and begin to ask that very question. And I feel like everybody that was responding to me also was just as disturbed as I was about their answer and their response was, you know, well, if she's a runaway and a minor, um, then then she might go to jail for that because that's a crime. Or she may go back home to the home that we uh, that she ran away from in the first place. Um, or maybe domestic violence if they're adult. Maybe a homeless shelter. You know, so nobody really had this solid long-term solution for this specific population. And so that was really confirmation that okay. This is now time to really dig in and say, what is the problem? What would it look like to serve survivors of sex trafficking in our area? Uh, for minors, what does a license look like? Who's doing what in this space? What are best practices? Um, and really, what are the challenges that people see? And what are the opportunities that are out there that would help us to understand how do we best fill the gap? Right, so when we talk about second shots, people might be thinking, okay, well, what's the second shot story here? Alicia had a great life. She started to, you know, decided to open this group, but the second shot is what you're offering. I mean, that what you're offering for these, these girls and these women is a second shot at life because it sounds like prior to your foundation, they were just kind of put back out there in the world, which is not ideal for healing. Right. You know, I, I oftentimes, even today, we're unasked, okay, Alicia, so when they come into your care, you get them a job, right? And we found out that getting a job for someone that has such an intense level of trauma, and I think that we can liken it even to veterans coming back from from battle, be, coming back from war, and, and just saying, okay, now let's get back to normal life, that we're seeing that that is just not a sustainable outcome and an expectation for the survivors that have gone through um, this the, tra the traumas of trafficking. So you so so here so explain kind of how it works. So somebody's rescued. How do they how do they get to you? So for four years before we opened, we uh, try to do a really good job of 
networking, getting out in front of other organizations, saying how can we best augment the services that you provide, and letting them know, updating coalitions, law enforcement. So by the time we opened up our doors 10 months ago, we did have a good referral base. They knew that we were open and they were ready to send us referrals, whether that be law enforcement, uh, whether that be FBI, Homeland Security, parents on social media, churches, um, other nonprofits in this space that operate as the advocate uh, role for these survivors and even survivors online that have been in other programs and maybe were uh, needing some extra support. Maybe they weren't successful in that program uh, or for less that program for any reason. Now they were aware that we were open. So you get the girls in and then what's the, what's the process like? What's the healing process like for somebody who's been through this kind of trauma? You know, I, I think when we first started, we had this textbook of how it was going to look. And then we go, oh, my goodness, mm. this this is we we are very we've always said that we wanted to tailor our program specifically for each individual's needs. But you kind of think that some of their needs are going to be similar, but their stories are very, very unique, especially in domestically in the states. Because some come from very affluent families and have had education, or some uh, come from impoverished, and then all the way in in, in, in the spectrum of of that. And, and so, when they come in, we do a psychological exam. Where are you with anxiety and PTSD and depression? Um, that is conducted by our therapist. Then we also do a drug test. If it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter. We just need to know how we can come alongside and support in the substance abuse piece, pregnancy. We also, that's when we activate our resources for uh, providers that can help with that process. And, and OBGYN, they go and see uh, within the first 30 days. We have a psych eval as well um, with a psychiatrist that can help them get on some meds if, they, if they've been off their meds for a while. But really looking at that mental health progress as well as the simple day-to-day -day things like Hey, how are you sleeping at night? How are you eating? Are you taking showers regularly? We measure those activities of daily living. They don't have access to social media and cell phones and technology. Um, we really try to build in that safety and security uh -huh. that has been lost for so long while also meeting the practical needs of getting a, a maybe an ID that they had lost or a, um, a birth certificate or meeting with attorneys if they're going to a court case to prosecute their trafficker so kind of like the everyday things that sometimes you and i grew grow up grew up doing mm -hmm. that was lost we try to really pick back up and figure out where they are in their education where they want to dream where do they want to go and it may take them a while to remember what those dreams actually were um sure. way back when but when they do say, you know, I want to be a paralegal, I want to really fight on the justice side of this, or I want to be a teacher because a teacher was the one that reached out and saw that what was happening to me was, was wrong. So I want to give back that way. So we really begin to set them on that path while supporting them in the mental health piece. Sure. Now, Alicia, so, so we're talking about the recovery process. Let's also go back to, before we lose people on this, because here's what happens, and I, and, I, and I know because people's minds are busy and they're full and they think that this does not impact them. Before we lose you, um, we need to explain, Alicia, how 
this comes about, how, how this process happens, because the truth is, you ask any parent, they say, my kid is not at risk for this. This is not gonna happen in our family. This is somebody else's problem. Um, but what I've been learning, you know, really over the last several years is that uh, all children have the, the ability to be trafficked. So you, can you explain sort of what you've learned over this process of the last several years about how trafficking happens? Yeah, so, you know, it, when I first started learning about this, I, I would hear a lot of the age 12 to 14 is the average age of when a young person would be exposed to, to trafficking because it happens to the most vulnerable. And, you know, you think of most vulnerable, you think of those kids that come from broken homes or in poverty or, but however, I don't know about you, but I think between the ages of 12 and 14, I was pretty vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, my parents are still married. I come from a small town, very varsity blues kind of uh, lifestyle. But I think at that age, you are trying to figure out who you are and, and you do have opportunities to engage with people now on social media that will compliment you on your hair yeah. or your outfit and can you kind of explain the grooming process can you explain how this yeah. happens because the the psychological attachment is 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 very specific it seems like there is a it's it's like there's a plug and play for how they're getting these kids yeah and you know traffickers they're business people right and so they prospect like a business person would so they can get online i have access to uh, your child, if your child has access to social media or even a cell phone or gaming, and begin to build a friendship, build trust, uh, find out what that child's needs are. Do you have a father? Do you have a girlfriend? Do you Are you being bullied at school? And that grooming process of building trust in a relationship to where when and if that child decides to leave their home and meet up with their trafficker, they are not being kidnapped. They are not being whacked over the head at a park and put in a van and chained to a bed and pumped full of drugs. Does that happen? Yes. But it's very, very rare in the States. Our kids are going willingly. Hear that again, you guys. Our kids are going willingly. So this is, I mean, how, how long are they talking to the kids before there's an actual meetup? What is that? How long does that process usually take? You know, it's going to depend on the state of the child. If the child is in a desperate need for attention, then it can be sooner. It can be weeks um, and, or it can be months of time that these traffickers invest in these young people to build that trust and to break down the walls and, and to really portray even mom and dad in a poor light. Uh, it's always dangling the hope of a better life. You know, and then, and then sometimes it's based on fear. Maybe they exchange some photos, some racy photos that this individual doesn't want to, this child doesn't want to get out to their cheerleading squad or their choir um, or get back to their parents. And so now they, they're, they're fearful of getting caught. Maybe it's not they're being romanced, but they're really feel they're in danger or maybe their sibling has been threatened. I know where you live now. I know where your younger sister sleeps. And so now it feels like this obligation to, to, to uh, give in to the exploitation. Oh, okay. So they're just getting that lure of maybe a picture or just, just a token of something and then convincing them to do one thing after another, after another. Absolutely. Now here, let's talk about, um, you know, you, you, people will be hearing this from all over the country, but we are here in North Texas, your organizations here in North Texas. Talk about some of the numbers that, um, that are present here in North Texas with regard to the amount of kids that are trafficked each day. 
And it's so hard. So many people, we, we, some of us want to use numbers and some of us don't because it's such a hidden crime. We really don't know what our numbers are. But if we look at what's being published, we can identify 79,000 minors and youths. And this is a study published by the governor's office back in 2017 that 79 minors and youths are victims of sex trafficking, specifically in Texas. So you just go, and okay, so these are not uh, uh, international brought over. This is specific to our Texas born and raised kids. Now, a study was done in 2011, so it's very dated, but you'll see it often. We, there, It's reported that 400 underage girls are being sold for sex in Dallas every night. That's so disturbing. It's, it's so disturbing. And are these kids that are um, considered runaways or are they being held somewhere? Are they kids that are going back home and then going back to their trafficker during the day? Or what does that look like? It, everything you just said looks just like that. I mean, we could have kids sitting next to our own kids in school being trafficked by their parents. Um, being trafficked by a so-called boyfriend um, because maybe mom and dad aren't available or it can be absolutely kept somewhere, um, feel in danger of leaving. I mean, a lot of the kids end up being truant, um, but some of the kids are, are, are beneficial being in school. They can help recruit other kids, unfortunately. And, and it, that sounds harsh because that sounds really uh bad for the you know the victim uh, behavior but if you talk to the victims they will tell you that was the worst part of what they had to do for safety was they had to recruit or they feared for their life mm, so so had to recruit as in so so they get trafficked by, by whatever means then they're sent back out into school to recruit other kids to keep their own safety to say it like it like it, i mean i'm guessing there's some sort of threat if you don't do this then we'll will harm you or your family yeah or um i'll take this all away and you'll have to go back home to where your stepdad is sexually abusing you or i'll show those photos you know and or you know what i'll up your quota and so now your quota is a thousand dollars and i'll up it to two thousand dollars and this individual is so tired and is so beat down it just finally it's just okay, I'll just do whatever. And you go to school, you build a bond and a friendship building on, based on trust. And then now we have two individuals going to a party, uh, meeting up at Chick-fil-A and building a relationship with the trafficker unbeknownst to them. And now we have more victims of trafficking. You mentioned something about parents, about families. Uh, we got to go back to that. Explain how that can happen. Yeah. That's one of the hardest ones to identify, but we see it in the States is growing so, 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 so rampantly to where um, it, it was even shared with me by one of the advocacy centers, Alicia, I know your age to serve in the future will be 11 to 17, but could you lower that age to nine? Because we're seeing a lot of young people, um, girl, it was girls and specifically that were being trafficked by their family and going home obviously is not an option. So whether that be uh, uh, late on their rent, whether that be a, a, drug, a substance abuse, or whether that be familial generational trafficking where mom was trafficked, mom's uh, lost her job through COVID, daughter is having is sexually active, and the 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 landlord that they're uh, you know the landlord would like to have sex with the daughter that's that's young that's already sexually active, and why not go ahead and just make money? 
and help pay the rent off, off of something that she's already doing. And that's kind of how it's just explained and we're, we're normalizing uh, this behavior. And they really feel like, well, this is my way to contribute to the family. My mom's in a tough spot. My dad's in a tough spot. So why not? Wow. There's just, it's, I'm just, there's this overarching feeling of guilt associated with every level of it. Absolutely. And I, I think if, I mean, when I think of guilt for myself and, and shame, and I, that is one of the worst feelings is shame and regret. And, and just to, and to be a young person, to feel that way and to just kind of give up and based on the people that you love and the people that you've built trust with, um, exploiting you, you really feel like maybe other kids are doing this too. Maybe this is normal. Um, and and that's, that's the part when they come to us, it's so hard to unravel the truth that has been told to them for uh, their whole life. Right, especially if they're born into a family that, that traffics. And I think that when you explain it like that with the landlord, you know, it's, it's not like sex traffickers go around with a, a hat on that says, sex traffickers. So this is, you know, this is coming in very various different ways. And it makes me think, gosh, you know, have we all come across somebody who participates in something like this and we just don't know it? Yeah. And I think that's what I, what we see so oftentimes, especially on social media and, 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 in uh, news outlets, we, we talk about the atrocity of the supply, but we were failing to really understand that if we have such a huge supply, then obviously there is a demand for it. Mm. There is a, a, a need. There are um, people wanting, they say that we're actually the largest distributor, uh, United States is the largest distributor of child pornography in the world. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Which, I mean, that, I, I, like what? That's shocking. You know, that's shocking. So, so we're talking about American children being photographed and videos taken of and used and distributed all around the world. Well, and if you look at that, the, the controversial show on Netflix right now, yeah, we've and all the language lot. around that, I mean, that's case in point. So let's talk. So when, when we talk about um, the the demand, right? Who are these people? Who you know? Can you you you're dealing with the people on the other end of it? They know who their clients are. I don't are they considered clients? I don't know. But but who are these people that are the the consumers of this content or the the clients of these girls? So when we talk about the, we call them the Johns out on the streets, you know, when they're, when they're approaching a, a person that is in the sex industry out on the streets and, and to buy, to pay for sex, those Johns in our area is 30 to 45 year old, white, middle to upper middle class male. But when you talk about behind the screens of child pornography and pedophile rings, and you talk about uh, massage parlors that are right around every street corner that we know of. Now that is all over the board, male, female. It, so we don't even have a really good grasp to be able to say, oh, it's this, because they're the ones sometimes not even being arrested or identified just because of how hard it is to um, catch them, so to speak. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so bizarre. So, yeah, you're right. We talk a lot about the people who are involved. But we don't talk about the people who are paying for it, because if there wasn't a need for it, if people stopped paying for, um, y you know, uh, 
for their own pleasure, then we wouldn't have this issue with our young girls and even and even young boys. For the people who say, and this is still a very widely held belief, and for the people who say, look, these these people are choosing this. These girls, these women are choosing this. They could leave any time. What is your response to them? I really think that we have to go even liken it to domestic violence and really begin to remember when we would say the same thing about domestic violence or we would say the same thing as to say about substance abuse. Why don't you just stop? Why don't you just make a decision and just leave? Well, there's so many dynamics to that. Some young ladies that I've known, they couldn't leave because the trafficker had their children. Mm-hmm. The trafficker um, owned everything. This person had absolutely nothing um, to, in their name, no, no possessions, no way to eat. She has drug charges or, or all sorts of different, say, felony charges. And how could she go and get a legitimate job if she doesn't know that she's able to get a legitimate job? How does she know that there there's even resources out there that would want to help her? And sometimes these individuals stay in this life because of that mentality right there. Nobody would want to help me. They, I did send those pictures. I did get myself in this mm-hmm. mess. I, I did have that, uh, um, that child at a very young age when I wasn't able to care for them. And so the trafficker does a really good job of making sure that they believe that this is like you did this to yourself. So they also buy into the lie where we are also judging them saying, well, you did this to yourself. So does that mean that there, we shouldn't offer resources? Does that mean that we shouldn't dig deeper and, and ask why is Susie sleeping with the entire football team? Uh-huh. We've got to start asking those questions because we we know that no one says from an early age, you know what, I think I would like to go into the sex industry. I think I would like to be bought and sold 10 to 15 times a day and have a quota over my head to whether I can eat or not. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, that was something we spoke about on the phone, Alicia, that reminded me that I wanted to bring that up, too. You know, when you talk about promiscuity among girls, you you were saying, you know, sometimes there's something much bigger going on there that the adults in her life need to look at as opposed to just judgment. Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, we say, hey, make sure you don't hang out with Susie because we know that she has this kind of reputation or we don't date Susie. But Mm -hmm. But in reality, where did Susie learn how to do those things? Mm-hmm. Who taught her? Why does she feel the need? But And that's hard because that really takes, makes us as a community have to take time to really lean in and, and ask about these behaviors. We're asking it now at, with at-risk youth. Why is this youth um, having an outburst in class? Why are they showing up in the same clothes every single day? Well, we need to begin to ask this of our young people that are um, promiscuous and they are uh, having older boyfriends. Mm. And you go, you know, you have a designer handbag and I know that your mom and dad don't, uh, would never buy that for you. Where did you get that? Why are you missing school? You used to be a straight A student, but that means we have to be mindful to say, hey, Susie, can, can we connect? Can we talk about what's going on? What's going on at home? And begin to ask those questions.
Yeah, we're in a weird time, Alicia, where I think it's like we're so told to just kind of mind your own business, stay, you know, stay in your lane, don't bother other people's families. But it's true. If somebody doesn't step forward for these children, you know, who is going to? Um, really quickly, and I know this is probably a, a much longer discussion, but what do we do if we suspect that someone in our child's class or somebody in our neighborhood or somebody we know, a, a friend, a, you know, an acquaintance is involved in this industry or or tangled up in this industry? I think we need to educate ourselves uh, before we do before we say, oh, oh, this is there's a zip tie on my car. And I think this might be human trafficking. And we post that all over social media and really uh, taking the focus away from what's really happening is to educate ourselves. Wait, what, what, is what does really the zip tie indicate? Like? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's the it's the I mean there is peanut butter if there's peanut butter on your windshield then the trafficker when you go to wipe off the peanut butter they will um, snatch and grab you and there's a lot of those oh, snatch it's just and grab like areas theory it is and, and that's why we we have to say okay we, we we can't jump on these bandwagons we really have to learn it from survivors and their stories, how it happened, how it happened in their own neighborhood and how it happened in an affluent family, how it was happening in their own family under their own roof, but begin to know what it looks like. And then there are anonymous tip hotlines. There's a national one, there are local ones, um, but that that is what you okay. can make a tip you can you know someone can make a, make a phone call well and that's you know that's actually a really valuable resource Alicia because the thing is we know what to do we know who to call if someone's robbing our house we know who to call if someone's stealing our neighbor's car I don't think the general public knows who to call if they suspect something like this is happening because it doesn't seem like such an imminent threat it doesn't seem like a 911 thing so what we will do is um, link up on the show notes your page and we'll link up some of these these hotlines and such for for people to have as a resource. The other thing I wanted to get into really quickly was prevention. You know, I know that you are a mother, you have several kids and who, who, who have friends and who are, you know, just invested in the community and everybody who's listening and watching, I'm sure would love to know too, what, what's the key to prevention in our own families? I, I talk to my kids often. I try not to scare my kids yeah. with scare tactics, but I do try to educate them and my kids are young. So I try to be really open with them about not not really demonizing people and saying, oh, everybody you're talking to online when you're gaming is bad, but just giving them practical tools like, hey, we don't use headphones when you're talking to someone when you're gaming. We don't play with anyone that we don't know, haven't met face to face. I want to hear what conversations are going on. Um, I've installed apps on their computer, on their cell phones. I mean, it's an extra step, but we're going to put the phone in their hand. We need to be accountable for taking those extra steps to keep them safe because nowhere does it say that we need to trust our 11-year-old or 12-year-old with a, de with a device. It just, it just doesn't make sense. And so maybe call us the helicopter parent, but I think today's day and age, there is so our children are so easily accessed, so easily bullied. I mean, there's we see it. It's just rampant that we have to be mindful of the apps be mindful of who they're talking to on those games what shows they're watching on youtube what the, how they're being groomed um whether that be the desensitizing of the way that they dress the way that they talk the expectations of how they should be treated sexually i mean 
it, it's just having that open conversation with them again and again and again to make sure that you've created a safe space for um, your child and those young people in your life. So when they want to speak up, they know that they can. Yeah, that's good. Well, and you say helicopter parent, but I was thinking you were going to say no phones, no games, no devices, nothing. But what I'm hearing you say is just be involved and keep the conversation going as opposed to just cutting out everything. Right. And if some people want to cut out everything, uh, that makes life a whole lot easier. Yes. Sure. Um, but in, in, a, in a day and age where our kids are growing up with technology, they probably won't be going to college with uh, with, with a pad of paper like, you know, like we did and, and notebooks. <laughs> I mean, they're going to be going with electronics and and being able to empower them and teach them how to make safe choices on the devices, even that schools are giving them, you know, we can't balk the system so much. So when they are, they're out of our sight that they don't know how to handle themselves on, uh, on, on those devices. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good point. How great is the need for something like what you've created at Treasured Vessels Foundation? You know, it was so hard to understand, wow, we have all these great awareness and, and education, uh, prevention and rescue efforts and legislation. But man, this gap in care of 24 hours a day, seven days a week, care for these young people long term is just, it is, it is an incredible need to augment all the other things because there's no point in being rescued if we're just going to send you back home or there's no point in being rescued if we're out just just talking about awareness it really takes a collaboration of of all of us but this seems to be the most uh, expensive and the most underfunded yeah. piece of the puzzle i have found not having a background in philanthropy or fundraising <laughs> you know uh, but learning all the things um, that go with uh, providing care and the mental health and food shelter clothing, right. all the wraparound services, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a young person. Right. Gosh, Alicia Bush, thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for being so open about this effort. I mean, you've really opened our eyes to a lot of things. So thank you again. Thank you, Jenny. Appreciate you. I want to give everybody the website, so if it's on your heart, you heard the, the need for funding. I mean, th this is something that she's really starting from the ground floor up. It is treasuredvesselsfoundation.org. You can also find them at Treasured Vessels Foundation on IG, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, she has some special events coming up as well, so you'll find all of that um, on their pages. Thank you. I uh, just, I mean, you guys, like how eye-opening is this. I hope that this has been valuable for you. I ho hope that you can see, you know, as a part of Second Shot, what we want to do is show all walks of life, all different Second Shots. Um, we had talked about, you know, trying to get somebody who had been trafficked and been through it. At this point, we weren't sure that that would be the most valuable thing for them or for us, because the truth is talking about that trauma and going over it and over it and over it. Um, to educate others, I just don't know that that's right. So I'm thankful that Alicia was able to kind of um, put some of that knowledge out there for us. If you have uh, somebody in your life that has taken a second shot or been given a second shot or has an inspiring story to, to share, please email us at secondshotcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at secondshotpodcast.com. And you know these segments air every Thursday on CW33 TV here in Dallas. And for now, I will sign off and I will check with you guys next time.